Welcome to the 21st episode of the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, un... Shit, I forgot to Ill-advised. open up Ill-advised. The, the intro. Movie talk! <laughs> I, I'm uh, your your host, Joe Campbell, and with me are my co-hosts, Alex Patton. Hello. And Nathan Stone. Hey. Today, we are going to be looking at a director that Alex likes and forced us to watch a whole bunch of his movies. <laughs> oh, come Derek's... on, Joe, you, you like him as well. Well, well, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Uh, Derek Cien France. Am Cien I pronouncing France, that yeah. right? I believe so. Mm-hmm. It's one of those names that I've seen written out a lot. Um, never had to speak out loud until today. So uh, we're going to be looking at three of his movies. Uh, Blue Valentine, Place Beyond the Pines, and The Light Between Oceans. I mean, really, he only has three movies. So this was kind of an easy choice. Three main ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's true. I think he has uh, one or two earlier movies, but it's... He's uh, done a lot of documentaries, actually, much about past, them. So he has a lot of work in that. He does commercials, too, interestingly enough. That's true. He does do I should check some of those out, actually. I'm really curious about that now. Oddly enough, he has a really cool um, commercial for Dick's Sporting Goods. Really? Yeah. I'm it's, like, to... it's a whole like one take. It's pretty rad looking. But before we get into that, uh, we'll get into what we have been watching on our own lately. So, Nate, kick us off tonight. Um, I was going to let Alex go since he's our guest of <laughs> honor. Oh, so can I actually oh, all, pass the baton to by him? By all means. <laughs> all right. Um, I've been watching anime again. I bet that's it, a big surprise. Uh, what else do I, I don't? What do you mean? I watch anime, I play video games, I watch YouTube. That's what I do. Yeah, that's what you can afford. Exactly. <laughs> what do you what do you what do you watch on YouTube lately? <laughs> I watch Let's Plays and stuff like that, man. Yeah, there's a lot and of those. I do watch, I okay. started watching a, a a channel I just I found a little bit ago, uh Donut Media. They do a lot of car videos. Um and that, so that's been pretty fun. They have a really cool series um called Up to Speed, where they just go through like a, the history of of like one specific car or one specific like you know, company or something like that. So that's been really informative. And it's Are fun. you a car guy, Alex? Not really. I like cars. I mean, I've always, I always have since I, since I was younger, but I've never really gotten into them re- a lot. I mean, like I like to know a lot of like the different makes and models and stuff like that, but I don't know, like uh, going like under the hood. I I'm, compl- I'm, compl- I'm completely clueless when it comes to that kind of thing. Okay. So the show that or the channel that you're watching, like, do they like focus on specific type of sports cars or just all cars in general? Just everything. Like they're up to speed, up to speed series. Mm-hmm. They have they have episodes for everything from like supercars to literally the Chevy Astro. Oh, nice! Like that block of a van. Oh, sweet. So they've got everything. It's informative and it's also fun to watch too. Nice. Like the hosts are all really interesting and engaging. So. That's always cool. That's really keeps cool. You, keeps, yeah. you, keeps you interested. So now let's talk about anime. Anime. Okay. So uh, I caught up with, I think there might've been a new episode came out this week, but I caught up with um, Maidens of the Savage Savage Season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's honestly becoming one of my favorites for this season. It's so good. It's slice of life. So it deals a lot with relationships and stuff like that, as mm-hmm. you kind of often do. But in watching, actually watching the, you know, the Derek C and Franz movies, they're not really that far apart. Um, they both kind of focus, like I said, on relationships of people between people and 
kind of how everything can really like fall apart and implode okay. at like a moment's notice. Okay. Cause most like anime slice of life are kind of a little bit more lighthearted, at least from my like experience with them. Yeah. Like Nietzsche Joe's obviously a lot more lighthearted so that you'd say this one dabbles a little bit more in just the heavier family issues and things that are part of just like life in general. Partially, I mean, not so much family issues, but just like, like romance and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I mean, there is comedy to it. So it's not like, it's not like just some, it's not like a a dose of feels that you're just getting hit every single episode. I mean, you kind of are, but there's stuff to balance it out. So it's okay. not just you're not crying every second from from the moment you start up the episode. Oh yeah. But I've I yeah, like I said, I've been really loving that one. I think it's really fantastic. I haven't really been watching anything else. I need to catch up on um Don Machi again. Mm-hmm. Um you know, continue watching Demon Slayer. I, okay. I did catch I was gonna up. I was gonna actually ask if it was Goblin Slayer or, or Dragon Slayer. I forget which one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then I also caught up with um, the show Given, which is uh, which is pretty good. It's about a uh, bunch of high school. I think they're high. No, they're a little bit older. High school or maybe a little bit older or somewhere on that. Yeah, adults. Like, we'll call it that. Yeah, something like that. Um, but a group of uh, four guys starting a band. Yeah, it started really good and continuing on really solid. Um, I probably should have expected this going into it noticing knowing it was four dudes mm-hmm. but yeah it gets a bit gay <laughs> which is which has been interesting yay <laughs> <laughs> but they handled it really well and like the kind of developing the um friendships and relationships of like a lot of the different characters in the in the show is all over it worked really works really well so far and the music's you know solid yeah Can't i mean complain. yeah it's it's good music you know has there ever been has there ever been an anime with bad music? Um, Probably, yeah. There have been a few. Yeah, I don't I don't know of any off the top of my head that had like bad music. That's probably don't why you don't hear from them is because it, when the music and the soundtrack sucks, then the rest of Japan will make sure they shut it down <laughs> really quick. <laughs> yeah, I think it just gets forgotten. But uh, yeah, Alex, I mean, you got you got anything else for us? No, nah, that's about it. Yeah, just you know, and then more destiny. More destiny. <laughs> lots of destiny. Boy. But that's what I've been up to. Cool. So, Nate, what have you been watching lately? Okay. Well, luckily for me, I caught the famous holiday cold this past week. So, pretty much I was like bedridden with a fever. So, I just caught up on a lot of Netflix shows that I've been meaning to catch up on. Um, one of the ones I actually recently watched is the new Dark Crystal uh, series that just got launched on Netflix, The Age of Resistance. I watched part of the first episode of that. I haven't finished it yet. Okay. I won't spoil it for you, but let me just say this. I have never really found the need or the gumption to actually compare a show to be better than Game of Thrones, but this show kind of went there and I was impressed. Wow. I mean, these are Muppets, okay? Yeah. And just like a fantastical world. But it gets Game of Thrones really fast and really good. The writing is actually surprisingly good for what this is, being like a prequel for the original Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. I was not expecting it to be as good as it is. Um, but everything that they put into us, I mean, they're working with the Jim Henson uh, company with all the okay. puppets. So it's like using the actual puppets of the Skeksis, of the, you know, I'm a, oh, crud, I forgot the name of the, the you know, the little elf things. But they've gotten really good and the CGI and how it's used in it, you can't even tell sometimes. I mean, there's like some big sweeping shots like Peter Jackson establishing shots that you can totally tell they're CGI, Mm -hmm. but stuff that they use for like the eyes or even the nostrils to make it have that life texture to it. 
it's done pretty seamlessly. Like for the budget, it was good. I was like, wow. And the voice acting, I'm going to say voice acting is the best part. Um, I'm not going to say who Simon Pegg voices in this, but he's one of the Skeksis. And I was blown away. I was like, dude, you're like doing some Frank Oz shit with this. <laughs> How are you pulling this off? And you just are, I guess when you have people who are just that dedicated, it's going to pull off very well. But mm-hmm. I watched that. It was good. I'm actually excited for the second season. You know, so You know what's interesting is that, so I, I, I actually showed my four-year-old daughter the original movie mm-hmm. uh, within the past week or so. And we started watching the first episode together. Uh, didn't get very far, just 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 uh, had other things to do. But from what I've heard, it's probably a good thing that I didn't get very far in the show with her. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I've also, also I've seen a very strange clip of a Skeksy peeing, which is very <laughs> oh, yeah yeah. yeah. Like I too. said, it gets very Game of Thrones. I will say that. Like <laughs> I said, in just all areas. But I would say I'm kind of glad you just showed her the first episode because the second episode is when shit gets real. Like a lot of dark stuff happens. There's a torture scene in this. Yes. <laughs> They pull out someone's eyeball and it's great. They pull an eyeball of a puppet. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's the tension and how it was building up. I was like, oh my gosh, this is uh, this is for families. Okay, <laughs> we're going here. Really, Happy Time Murder has got nothing on this. <laughs> um, aside from that, uh, I mean, I've been trying to catch up on Stranger Things, still kind of on that. But one of the shows I actually recently watched. Um, and I completely forgot that Netflix had produced this, um, but David Fincher and Tim Miller got together and they produced this one series called Love, Death, and Robots. And oh, it's basically yeah. an anthology series, but it's like all these guys produced and wrote and directed these animated shorts all revolving around those you know, three things. And I've actually seen a few of these. I, I was working through it back when it came out. Uh, I never, never finished it, but I've, I've seen probably about half of it. I mean, for like a, you know, this is the first time that they're doing something like this and just like the amount of detail in it like there's this one that looks very um, mass effect as far as like graphics and cgi i'm like mm-hmm. almost felt like if this was the budget for a, a mass effect movie this this is kind of like up there with it like it's really good animation i mean the stories get a little like promiscuous very pervasive but i don't know i, I couldn't expect anything else from being produced by tim miller and um you know david, david fincher yeah but good stuff i think i was kind of impressed okay Nice. Yeah, I'll have to go back and uh, finish that up because I was quite enjoying how much of it that I've seen so far. Anyway, you got anything else for us, Nate? Uh, no, that is pretty much it. All right, so I'll, I'll keep it quick too. Just go over two things that I've seen recently. Uh, who is the king of big, dumb destruction movies? Michael Bay. Well, Michael Bay. Roland Emmerich. You got, oh my gosh, you guys. Oh, just, well, okay. Oh, well, he, okay. Said, he didn't say disaster movies. Disaster movies. He's kind of known for doing those. Roland Emmerich is my go-to schlock director. Uh, I've loved his movies as, as, as a kid. I love The Day After Tomorrow. Watching them today, I still love his movies. You I like think- his Godzilla that he did? Be careful how you answer that. Uh, I- <laughs> Look, Godzilla was the first PG-13 movie I ever saw. My dad took me to see it. I was a big Godzilla fan. I loved that movie as a kid. I rewatched it recently. It's not that bad. I uh, I still enjoy it. So yes, I, I I like his his Godzilla movie. Joe, I don't know <laughs> if we can be friends anymore. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I love Roland Emmerich. He is my go-to schlock director of choice. He's kind of my guilty pleasure director. So I've been going through and I've, I've been trying to work through his entire filmography, the the ones that I haven't seen yet. And I recently watched uh, a 1985 movie he made called Making Contact. 
the synopsis says, believing to be able to communicate with his deceased father, a young boy develops psychic powers where he uses them to try to stop supernatural forces threatening his family and friends, especially a possessed ventriloquist dummy. This movie's pretty good, guys. I um, So I've seen like three of of Roland Emmerich's earlier movies. Uh, he, he, was, he, was, he was a German director and he made movies in, in German starting off. But even his early movies had this weird kind of pro-American thing to them. Like, you know how all of his blockbusters have, you know, flag-waving, pro-military, hoorah, kind of American dream? Yeah, pretty much like what Michael Bay does, but just more tastefully. Yeah, exactly. Or even like The Patriot, you know, mm-hmm. we have Mel Gibson running through a British horse with the American flag. Or Independence like, like Day, where it's like, you know, the American president's going to fight the aliens and take him down with a jet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's so he's always had this very uh, interesting kind of super pro-American approach to his movies. Mm-hmm. And watching his earlier movies, uh, his, his his earlier German movies, he still has that, which is strange to me. Uh, one of his earlier movies called Ghost Chase is set in Los Angeles. It's in a you know it's, it's in English with American actors uh, about these guys running around Hollywood. I forget solving a supernatural crime, Making Contact, the one that I just watched is like the most Spielberg ripoff of all the Spielberg ripoffs. This movie is E.T. meets Poltergeist. And it's blatantly obvious. Like, you can tell, like, they're ripping off the same visuals in the same it's, like... it's so weird. Like, like it's, it's pro-American uh, pop culture consumerism. Like, this, this kid <laughs> gets superpowers, right? Uh-huh. Like, psychic powers from talking to his dead dad. And he moves things with his mind. And, and there's a scene early on where some bullies go in to attack him. And one of the bullies is dressed up as Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the kid makes all of his Star Wars toys come to life. Like, there's like, a, there's like an Atwalker at walking around shooting lasers. The Millennium Falcon flies around. There's TIE fighters. It's crazy. And then later on in this movie, the evil ventriloquist dummy, ghost thing, whatever, is uh, making kids see what they fear most. And Darth freaking Vader himself shows up to terrorize <laughs> this bully. This movie's crazy <laughs> I, i'm kind of wondering like how many like uh royalties they had to pay the different studios just to feature all that oh yeah i'm wondering if they paid any like in that same scene where all this all the star wars stuff is attacking the kid you there's also like a bert and ernie on a little flying magic carpet or car or whatever flying around uh there's mickey mouse stuff all over this kid's like this kid is into american pop culture <laughs> okay i mean I'm kind of hoping this movie made more than what they had to pay back all the companies that they ripped off because (laughs) I don't know how well this movie did when it came out. I have no idea. But the movie is fascinating because out of all of Roland Emmerich's movies, it seems to be ripping off the Spielberg formula the most. You know, there's this kid. He has these psychic abilities. There's uh, the government shows up and quarantines off his house at one point, you know, with all the trucks driving in, all the CIA agents. A bunch of kids have to band together to fight the evil ventriloquist dummy and i'm pretty sure at the time when this came out the the studio was like you know what we need our own goonies et spielberg you know knockoff just to compete uh ronald elmerich you're doing it (laughs) well the interesting thing is that is that i I, so i i I rented this from scarecrow video like a video rental store in seattle and they, they had both the extended german cut which is longer by like 20 minutes and the u.s cut which has a completely different soundtrack and I watched the extended cut, the German cut, because I thought that, oh, it's the longer cut. Maybe it's, uh, it's you know, Roland Emmerich was still a German filmmaker. Maybe it's for a uh, German audience. They got the, the original cut and they didn't get the trimmed down version. But I'm wish, starting to wish that I'd watched the American cut because 
for one thing, the American cut has a better soundtrack, which again is totally Spielbergian. The uh, the German cut has kind of this cheaper sounding soundtrack. And for another thing, watching the German cut, it became fairly obvious that all the actors were speaking English anyway. And we're being oh. dubbed into German. <laughs> oh, weird. All right. Weird. Okay. So I just wish that I'd watched the US cut, even though it's 20 minutes shorter, which also probably, honestly, having watched the movie, it felt too long. So cutting 20 minutes out would have probably made it a lot better anyway. But also, it would have been distracting seeing characters speaking English, but reading subtitles anyway, because everything's been dubbed back into German. So I, I, I kind of want to rewatch the American cut of this and see if I like it better. I already enjoyed it as it is like it's it's dumb it's silly and it's it's like a ripoff of a ripoff kind of Mm -hmm. you know it's like three degrees removed from steven spielberg but it's still kind of fun honestly joe i think the one thing that kind of just caught my attention is that you got this from a video rental store like i'm surprised (laughs) that those still exist up there in washington oh yeah uh i will i will always take an an opportunity to plug uh scarecrow video which i think is one of the few remaining video rental stores and they've got if i'm not mistaken i think they have the largest selection of movies anywhere in the world all together for public uh, oh, wow. rental so i mean really? like, i mean i mean i've rented dvds blu-rays vhs's they have laser discs there it's pretty great well laser discs that's even better basically i i have a running list of movies i want to see that i can't find online and i just kind of pick them up from from scarecrow video whenever i need to go because they'll all they have pretty much everything so you hear that people up in washington go to scarecrow video rental store for all your video rental needs support keep small them in business. business they're a great company they're, <laughs> keep they're, them in they're, business they're, they're just no joke and keep going and getting weird movies yeah it's they're a dying <laughs> breed uh last thing i'm just gonna touch on really quickly here is a movie from this year called nightmare cinema uh, Nightmare Cinema's uh, Five Strangers Converge at a Haunted Movie Theater Owned by the Projectionist, played by Mickey Rourke. Once inside, the audience members witness a series of screenings showing them their deepest fears and darkest secrets over five tales. So this is an anthology movie. I know uh, in a previous episode I talked about Southbound, which is a horror anthology movie. Uh, this is another one. The directors are Alejandro Bruchet. Joe Dante, Mick Garris, Ruhe Kitamura, and David Slade. Obviously, you bought this or you checked this out just for the Joe Dante segment. Mainly huh? the Joe Dante and, and Mick Garris. Uh, this is one that I've been wanting to see because I'm a big fan of Joe Dante and I'll take any Joe Dante I can get these days. And he directed a segment of this movie. And here's the interesting thing, thing about this. I watched this on VHS, actually, because the they, they released it on a limited edition VHS and I pre-ordered it right away even though i hadn't seen it because i really wanted to to see the movie and i thought yeah vhs is limited edition it'll be fun so i can't tell if i enjoyed this more because it was a low resolution cropped quality and it kind of matched the devil may care fun over the top nature and i feel like if i watch this if in in hd in the proper aspect ratio i feel like the the cheap cgi would show out stand out more cuz there isn't a whole lot in there but there are some scenes where i'm watching this and i'm like oh that's cheap cgi but it looks okay because it's like i'm watching it on an old vhs as opposed to looking you know like pristine and i enjoy the vhs look uh typically if given the the option i will always take the uh, the original version as intended in the correct proper aspect ratio with the high definition but every once in a while it's fun to plug in the vhs and just see it as kind of an an, an alternate version of the movie the the weird thing is that that's the only way that i've seen this movie so far and i enjoyed it and i feel like i would have enjoyed it less the way it was intended to be seen 
uh, that being said, the movie itself is a lot of fun for an anthology. It starts off really, really strong. The first couple segments are stronger than the rest, but what I like about this is that there's a lot of variety. In a lot of these horror anthologies, there's some stylistic variety, but it's kind of like, oh, you know, on VHS, it's, oh, here's another kind of similar feel. Another story with a similar kind of feel, just in a different style. This one seems to be tackling different genres of horror. So the first segment is like a, a spoof of slashers, but it's I, I, I think spoof isn't the right word. It's it's basically a slasher that's very tongue-in-cheek, but they never wink at the camera. It's like a ridiculous parody of a script, and everyone's playing it completely straight. And it's so wonderfully fun. There's one point there that a, a meteor crashes to the ground, and some characters are looking at it, and you know one of them says, we should leave it to science, we shouldn't go touch it. And this jock looks over his shoulder and says, fuck science. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing's like that. And there's, I, I don't want to spoil it, but there's one moment with a, a, a gag with some knives with the slasher. That's one of the funniest damn things I've seen in movies from this year. And it started the, started the series off on such a great foot. That it, it did it did get a little bit disappointing. I've seen I've seen some people say like, oh, it, it's just it's bad for the, from from then on. But the first one is great. No, no, the rest of them are great because one of them goes into this weird kind of black and white Lynchian surrealist uh, thing. They have a Sixth Sense knockoff that's just basically their their ghost story. They've got uh, kind of like a supernatural demon episode that takes place in a uh, I think it's like a Catholic school. Uh, where you where you get this wonderful sequence where this priest is just hacking up little kids with a broadsword. Jeez. I don't know. This thing is crazy. Broadsword. <laughs> you need to watch it to find out. Okay. Anyway, yeah, no, I think Joe. I think for this year for Halloween, I'm I'm really kind of gonna probably encourage you to watch some of these movies that I've been looking into. But I will have to take a look at this one because this one's kind of already tickling my fancy, uh, just because like it it's very it sounds very Stephen Kingish as well and just the whole premise. Yeah, but the whole thing's very silly. It, it's 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 kind of like it's schlocky horror, but just the hits. So there, so you know, it takes like oh, what is the standout scene from this kind of movie? Let's take that and just give it its own segment. Move on to the next thing. And there is a lot of cheap writing, acting, cheap effects. But that's kind of the fun of the whole thing. And knowing Joe Dante being attached to this, it's like he's gonna bring the fun in horror so yeah joe, uh, joe dante segment is kind of the uh i, I want to say the grossest of, of of the bunch it's um it's like a like a weird twilight zone-esque kind of surgery body horror sort of thing mm, uh, nice. which is interesting it's, it's, it's not his best work but it was fun as part of this uh, this whole thing mickey mm -hmm. garris does the uh, the wraparound segment which involves mickey rourke and that was pretty, pretty well done too so if you're a fan of schlocky horror, I would recommend Nightmare Cinema. If you can watch, if you can get a hold of the VHS, I think it's sold out now. But if you can find it, I would recommend watching on that just for the novelty. Really? Sold out? A VHS would be sold out? Well, they only made like 100 copies of it. And Mick Garris signed half of them. Uh, uh, it does sound like a pretty like limited kind edition. of thing. Yeah, yeah that like, you would snap up. Yeah, yeah. You might be able to find some. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you could find some on, on uh, eBay. Um, but yeah, it's it's a... Yeah, check it out this Halloween. If you like schlocky, fun, dumb, uh, cheap horror, I'd recommend it. Nightmare Cinema. I do have one I, I'm recommending you should watch, Joe. That is Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. I don't know if you've seen it oh, yet. Oh, I know about that. I haven't seen it, but I know about you it. You need to watch it. I think you'd have I a do. blast watching it. 
I absolutely I, I agree I've, I've heard the uh, the how did this get made episode on it and it sounds <laughs> wonderful and terrible all at the same time it's it's great anyway let's jump into our director spotlight Derek Sion France you got any like talents like hidden talents can you dance you can tap dance can you no here I'll play a song and you dance okay I can't really sing I have to sing goofy in order to sing. Like, I have to sing stupid. Okay? Okay. to lead this one yeah <laughs> all right go ahead go ahead do it <laughs> all right so um uh, one of the reasons why i chose Derek san france was um he's got a pretty tight discography so it's easy to kind of get through mm-hmm. but i really like he he has a real main like focus in his movies mm-hmm. um he doesn't really go out and try a bunch of different genres and see what sticks he just kind of he's got his his thing he does it really well Mm-hmm. Um, I guess to kind of open up, we'll start with um, we'll start with his um first main movie with which was uh Blue Valentine, mm-hmm. and um, so I'm kind of curious what you guys what you guys both thought of it, and we'll start with uh with Nate here. Okay, I remember when this movie first came out. Like this was a a movie that just like a lot of critics were talking about. Like this is something yeah. that no one had ever really seen before, and kind of going off of like uh, Derek Garcia France's like style, he kind of mm-hmm. his style is very off the the beaten path. Like you definitely a bit, take a yeah. feel for it, and he's definitely doing stuff that's not very conventional that you would see even in a lot of indie films. Oh yeah, yeah. And this one definitely fits with that. Like the way I think at the time that it was pitched, I remember the trailer. I went and saw the trailer again just to kind of get that first in, impression mm-hmm. from the film. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like it's like you know just your typical indie love story but it's yeah. not it's actually quite the opposite it's a falling out of love story yeah i i mean it you know watching the trailer with or not really knowing a whole lot about the movie mm-hmm. it kind of you might get the sense that yeah oh it's just they fall in love and they have a kid and yeah. it's a great life and and it's just not that at all <laughs> no it's not actually in fact a lot of the scenes that kind of uh i i kind of rewatched again just to keep it fresh in my mind mm-hmm. but a lot of the stuff i remember about it is just really raw and just very exposed oh, yeah. like uh like uh, there's a big part of the you know when they're you know at the final stages of the romance where ryan gosling is wants to take michelle williams his wife you know try to rekindle whatever they can to salvage of their marriage and they they go to basically it's a sex hotel just to spend a night there yeah and a lot of just the stuff that i remember that sticks out is just how that goes down and what kind of unfolds after and i think there's a certain realism he captured in that yeah i'd I'd watched it years ago and so rewatching it now i had forgotten how uncomfortable that movie can be mm-hmm. in, in some movies it'll be really movies kind of that might follow a similar sort of story it'll take some like really beautiful shots mm-hmm. and it's all like very pretty looking mm-hmm. and what i love about derek c and francis specifically like this movie is just like you said it's so raw it's mm-hmm. so just right up mm-hmm. in a very uncomfortable very intimate space yeah. that you just can't really get away from so you're just kind of how you're just stuck there 
kind of watch just watching everything unfold right yeah. in front of you and just the whole relationship just implode mm-hmm. and i think just one of the things that just adds to the rawness um especially like i did a little looking into this with uh, derek when he basically was working with ryan and michelle he really didn't have them rehearse these scenes he actually just kind yeah. of like just only had them kind of like get to know each other you know have memories to share experiences but then when they went on set that was like really the first time they're acting all this out yeah and i think that's something that really he lends to his style of directing very well is he's trying to capture humanity at Mm -hmm. its rawest form and going on to like his other stuff that he will do later he is trying to find the right balance of where reality and fiction kind of meet like this is not them actually doing this stuff but i'm trying to capture it as if this is them experiencing it for the first time and i think that just lends to it where he is one of those directors who i think has owned this craft of you know what i want to give these actors this permission to feel these things to respond these certain ways so i'm not going to have them rehearse it and let it be very rigid or staged he Mm -hmm. doesn't want to go for a very scripted even though the script itself actually i was looking at the script it's pretty much almost word for word. I thought there was going to be a lot of improvisation throughout it, but no, it's actually pretty much the way it's written. And he really yeah. just said, I'm just going to have them act it out right then and there. We're going to get the cameras rolling. And I think that's just what makes that movie shine so well. Yeah. There's an interesting point on that. And in the um, scene on the bridge mm-hmm. to kind of go into that scene, Derek St. France went up to Ryan Gosling. He told him, Michelle has a, a secret and you have to do whatever you can to get the secret out of her. Then he went up to Michelle Williams and told her, you can't let him know. And so they just, they just, that's how they kind of went into that scene. Yeah. And a funny, also funny enough, when, when Ryan Gosling climbs over the fence, yeah, that, that wasn't part of it at all. He nope. just, he just did that. I think, I think one of the uh, producers or someone was on set and was just like almost ran out after him because there's no safety net at all. There's no. just, there's just nothing there. He almost, he could have fallen and died. Okay. Yeah, like kind of you saying, it's just like they're just kind of given more of a direction and kind of more almost like emotional end place for the scene to get to. And they just kind of fill in the spaces there. Yeah. And yeah, it's just that's what that is kind of what I really love about him. It's just like he Derek San Francisco really kind of gives his actors the ability and the freedom to to really kind of like live in their characters and just surprise him. Yeah. And he did mention that actually in an interview that he loves it when he gives his actors that permission to just, I want you to try something new, surprise me, and I want you to fail in the process because yeah. that is really what it means to be human. You're, yeah. like, you're not going to do everything right the first time. You're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You're going to cross the line that you shouldn't cross. And I feel like in this movie, he's doing a lot of that, especially just even like his camera work and how he's shooting a lot of the scenes. Mm-hmm. They're very, um, you know, we'll probably talk about cinematography, but the way he shoots it, it just feels very run and gun. There's this kind of yeah. gorilla style to it, but at the same time, it's like it it creates its own little energy to it as well. Yeah. Did, he, did either of you guys notice that 
so I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm kind of j- jumping the gun and talking about Place Beyond the Pines here a little bit. That's but fine. we can get into it. I, I remember when Place Beyond the Pines came out, and I saw that Ryan Gosling was in, it, and I thought it was going to be one of those things where, oh, the director and the actor are going to be teaming up for all their their their, their projects. You know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're kind of a duo. Yeah. Uh, but since then, The Light Between Oceans has come out. Ryan mm-hmm. Gosling wasn't in that, and mm-hmm. I noticed that Ryan Gosling is kind of playing a very similar character in both movies. And so I was, and so I'm wondering if it's if if, it, if it's if it's not so much that they, Sian uh, France and and Gosling, like working together, which I'm sure they do, but it's more of Sian France had this part in Place Beyond the Pines and thought, oh, it's you know, Gosling, Ryan Gosling would be perfect for this role because yeah. in both movies they're kind of very juvenile characters, very naive about how the world actually works, and in kind of this 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 almost like childlike state for an adult. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think if anything, like I remember reading this and I think you'll talk about this, like the, his scripting process or when he's writing the scripts, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but he will definitely write or even just go back to a script and rewrite it when he has an actor in mind, when he knows that this character just fits so well or meshes so well with this actor, yeah, he's going to give them that permission and it's just going to shine through. And I think with these characters that he has Ryan Gosling plays, he's just playing to Ryan Gosling's strengths as a character or even just as an actor he was at the time. Mm-hmm. I think at the time- yeah. Ryan Gosling was trying to kind of get himself out of the whole notebook, romantic, you know, stud of a guy. I think he was he just finished doing the Ides of March or something like that. So I think really good. Ryan Gosling was just trying to position himself as a more of like a character actor. And he was trying to find those roles. Mm-hmm. So when these kind of these parts like leapt off for him, he's like, Yeah, I, I want to do this. And he put his own like material in that. Well, that was around the time that that Gosling was being in uh Nicholas Winding Refn movies too, wasn't it? I think it was at the same yeah, time that was kind of coming around. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. just finished doing Drive and uh, Only God Forgives. Yeah. Still a fantastic movie, by the way. Yeah. I know you guys hate it. <laughs> Check out our video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they said like adults, you know. Yeah. Tom, it's for me. I'm still his father. I can give him stuff. Hey, I'm Officer DeLuca. We're here to search your house. What for? We're looking for the money that Luke Lanton, mayor, may not have given to you. 14 grand. The lion's share is going to our hero. This is your problem. This is our problem, and I'm bringing it to your attention because that's what I should do. I want to do two in one day. Yeah, get up! I'm not going to let you bring us both down. There's a way out of this. You're not going to like it. So I guess we can move on to Place Beyond the Pines, Mm -hmm. which, for me personally... Uh, I think that's my favorite one. I, I think for all of us, it's our favorite as well. Yeah. Yeah. When, when this came out in theaters, I saw it three times in theaters and I have no regrets. Honestly, yeah. Joe, actually, this was kind of a fun story. Like, I think when you were trying to like get into doing movie reviews, this was like one we were kind of like test piloting and we were trying to do a movie review on just because it left on such a good impression on us. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. I do remember that we somewhere out there is footage for a lost uh uh, this is kind of a tangent, but a last uh, a lost three hundred Rise of an Empire video that we shot. I yeah. have no idea where that footage went, uh, but it's out there somewhere, somewhere <laughs> in the ether. Um, no, this this was a good movie. Revisiting it again, I actually keep forgetting like just how well done this movie is. It's like I think mm-hmm. this is like if everything that Derek uh, C. France is good at 
put into one movie think this is it like yeah. this is a good example of it uh, yeah. a fair warning too we uh i think with with place beyond the pines and i think it's fair to say light between oceans uh, yeah. we will be getting into spoilers yeah yeah should throw that out uh, there just because it, it's kind of hard to talk about all of them all the movies and kind of everything that really went into them without getting into it and, and there's a lot of a lot of stuff to spoil especially in place beyond the pines oh yeah so, so just a fair warning. But but I, I just want to talk about quickly about, about style-wise, looking at both Place Beyond the Pines and Blue Valentine, they're both shot with this very interesting kind of naturalistic cinematography that's still super beautiful. He he uses depth of field extraordinarily well. Uh and I don't want to say necessarily like handheld, but there it, there's like a very kind of natural, almost handheld feel to both of these two movies. And I'm I initially thought that Blue Valentine, because Blue Valentine is interesting. I, just full disclosure, I'm not a big fan of Blue Valentine in general. I think it's just because I'm, I I didn't quite get the movie. It, it, it wasn't really my sort of thing, kind of the morose anti romance kind of a thing. I thought I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't quite sure what it was driving at uh, in the end. But I did I do like the way it was shot, especially how he did the the different kind of film qualities between the you know the present day and the past and kind of the the, the rosy film color. Yeah. Uh, of of the past and then kind of the the danker starker modern day segments but in place beyond the pines he does on a very it's, it's very stylistically similar to blue valentine in that everything's shot with this very shallow depth of field and kind of naturalistic way almost as if we're just kind of spying in on these people doing their normal everyday stuff yeah well kind of funny thing actually i think he got the the same dp who did um a lot of movies with uh steve mcqueen uh it was the same dp that did uh 12 years a slave and if you kind of see it there's similar trademarks of that style of how he uses uh yeah sean uh bobbitt yeah interesting interesting interestingly enough uh, you, well, you talk about how he's got how the cinematography is similar to Blue Valentine, but it's different DPs. The original DP for uh, Blue Valentine, so he was set to shoot Place Beyond the Pines. Mm-hmm. Um, but in an interview, Derek St. Francis was talking about how he backed out like eight weeks before filming because he had a dream that he was going to die while on set. Oh, yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of yeah. motorcycle chase stuff in this. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, so he just had a dream he was going to die on set, and he's just like, no, I can't. I have a family. I'm not. I'm not doing. I'm not doing Place Beyond the Pines. So, by the way, that that opening shot in Place Beyond the Pines, oh, is yeah. still one of the best shots of, of the of the his whole filmography. I'd so, say. I but, actually want to talk a little bit about that, if it's okay. This is a, another side tangent. We'll get back on track. But the actual cyclist he used for all the uh, motorcycle stunt work in this, mm-hmm. uh, Rick Miller, is the same guy who did all the Dark Knight motorcycle stunts. Oh, really? And okay. One thing, and he said this in an interview. He wanted actually to kind of give this guy who's done all the stunt work, but you know, when he kind of watches himself on screen and see all these stunts that he put his life to on the line just to do, just be cut down to like maybe just a few frames. So he said, I want to actually use this whole kind of like long take realism and capture stunts in their full, you know, entirety. Yeah. So that first opening scene where we, you know, we see Ryan Gosling who, you know, is suiting up, and then obviously there's like the seamless in the cut where, you know, it's obviously then Rick Miller doing it. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to show off like this is the stuff this guy can do. So it's almost kind of like nice how Derek Sia France just has this, you know, respect for even not only his actors, but stunt people who put like all their dedication to this work. Yeah. yeah. We might we might get into it later, but yeah, so that was something kinda of, that was something I kinda of liked about and real found out about Derek Sia France. He's a he's a very very humane person. Very, yeah. yeah he's very considerate about people. Wait! Bro, bro, don't hang up. 
I'm in trouble. Um, I'm in some lady's house. Bro, would you do a favor for me, please? Just one thing, I'll never ask for anything again. Look, don't tell him about me, okay? Okay, the, the first time you guys watched this movie, did you know what was going to happen with Ryan Gosling's character? And did you do no. you see that no. turn coming? No. No, and I think that's just like one of the things like, you know, for, you know, kind of like spoiler warning, we're going to start talking about, I guess, something you want to talk about, which is called the baton pass, right? Yes. Yeah. So, no, yeah. I, I, I did not anticipate um, Ryan Gosling dying because I thought... I thought, you know, he's he's on the main cover of the poster. He's, it's Ryan he's Gosling. It. He's going to be in the whole movie. He's, he's the star, of course. Yep. And then he's not. He's he, well, he's the star for a short period of time, but then he's killed off. Pretty much, uh, Derek Cassia friends does a psycho on us. He gives yes. us Janet Lee, and then he takes her out of the picture. Yes. And so that yeah, that baton pass of stories was inspired by Psycho. That was, I thought Hol- that was Hol- Hollywood's trend of a uh, killing off the blonde uh, <laughs> halfway through. <laughs> That would explain then why he dyed his hair blonde. When he I saw that, so. he's like, well, this is going to be a tribute to Janet Leigh. Way to go, Ryan Gosling. Yeah. He, he also, he wanted to have the most tattoos yes. ever in cinema history. Okay, can I actually say something? This is yeah. a cool story. So, um, and this is talk about one of my favorite scenes from that movie, but Ryan Gosling was like, he went all out with the tattoos. He's like, I'm oh, going to get yeah. a tattoo here, I'm going to get a tattoo here. He even got one of that dagger right by his eye. Mm-hmm. And when they got into production, he's like, Oh man, I kind of realized how stupid this looks. <laughs> yeah, he kind of regretted it. But he's like, maybe I should get this removed. But Derek C. France was like, no, man, you got the tattoo. You need to live with that, man. That's for it life. It fits the character. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it does that, the character. That's the thing. But yeah. the thing is, this whole kind of regret and humiliation that uh, Ryan Gosden had for getting that tattoo, he brought to the set. Yeah. And there's that one scene, the baptism scene. Mm-hmm. Where in the script, yes. it's actually written that he's supposed to react in rage and anger. And instead, we get the exact opposite. We get this Ryan Gosling who just comes in, sees his son being baptized by, you know, his girl as well as like her husband. And him still kind of feeling like an outsider. And you just get this very vulnerable moment of him kind of holding his head in shame as yeah. he's watching his son he, being he, baptized. Yeah, he was supposed to walk in and find a seat kind of in the middle row, middle row with like a bunch of people. Yeah. And... That, that's not how the scene played out at, at, at all, just because kind of going back to what we were talking about with Derek C. Vance fans, the Sid Derek C. and fans just lets his actors have the freedom to kind of mm-hmm. really inhabit the characters. Yeah. They were able to capture that. And I think it was a, just a very interesting uh, choice for Derek to kind of like almost kind of like I wouldn't say like shame but kind of like scold uh brian gosling for like <laughs> dude you got the tattoo you're gonna live with it yeah you're we're not gonna it. put makeup on it you're gonna stick with like it. your whole character is like dealing like, with this guilt and this shame yeah, of, this of like regret of like having made like terrible choices throughout this life yeah well you got one now too <laughs> yeah exactly and i think that's just something i i think very naturalistic but even just like this catharsis that he brings to that style and yeah. just with his actors so yeah can i say just how bad i feel for coffee in this movie mahershala ali's character yeah i keep forgetting that was mahershala ali kofi yeah he didn't deserve any of that, man. No, he was a good guy. I like him. He was yeah, so great. He's he's kind of like a cog in the wheel, and sadly, he just yeah, that was just horrible. Yeah. Hashtag, hashtag justice for Kofi. That's okay. He's got two Oscars now, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he got his justice. <laughs> he got his justice. No, but but honestly, I keep forgetting that Marshall Ali was in this movie. Yeah, like, but I revisit him because I'm like, wow. 
I forgot he was in this movie. Yeah. This might be my introduction to him, honestly. I think oh, so, same, too. Yeah. I think for all of us, we kind of like, I think this was like a first time seeing him. And honestly, can we just say like this movie just has a great ensemble of characters? Like, Oh, yeah. Even like the two kids uh, who play like oh, the other yeah. sons. They well, were like, okay. Oh okay. Hold up there. Okay. <laughs> oh, are we getting into? Oh. Is, is the, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I agree with you about the great cast. Um, okay. So when... When I first saw this movie, I I, I went to go see it. I, I went to go see it again, dragged some other people to go see it. And I went to see it a third time. I dragged uh, Katie to go see it. Katie, my wife, who she's been on some episodes of the show. Uh, she hated it, even though I loved it. But there's one thing that we kind of bonded over this movie was the fact about how much we could make fun of uh, Bradley Cooper's kid in this movie. <laughs> he was a wuss. Like, I mean, he like, was a wuss. Like, 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 Kid and I still say, you copping my oxys around the house. <laughs> 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 you couldn't understand a damn word that kid was saying in the movie. I mean, and the kid, I'm sure, is a fine actor. Just the, the character in the movie kind of took me out of it. Yeah. I, I actually really liked his character. Not like... I didn't like his character because his character is kind of an asshole, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I think that's kind of the point though. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought he played the character really well. Uh, honestly, I think you're that kid who plays a douchebag in movies from now on. <laughs> honestly, those, both of those actors really kind of like were in competition for the same role. And even like when they were on set, they were like just trying to size each other up. Like they were constantly doing that. Mm -hmm. But kind of going back to that whole baton pass when, you know, Ryan Gosling's taken out of the picture and the movie becomes something else. Yeah. And it actually becomes this whole story of like, really, I think what the whole movie is about, which is like, you know, this idea of like the sins of the father passed on to the son and that legacy yeah. that even though you may try to wipe your hands or bury it, it mm -hmm. can't be escaped. Like somehow it's going to resurface again. Yeah. I mean, the, the baton pass happens twice in the movie. It happens um, at the passing of Ryan Gosling's character, Luke. Mm -hmm. And then again, when Bradley Cooper's character decides to kind of essentially turn in almost like the entire police force yeah. and the detectives and everything like that. Oh, yeah. And so it goes from... I say Ray Liotta is terrifying in this Dude, movie. Yeah, he is. I've never seen a more God. scary performance just from anybody. And he doesn't even do much. Just that scene where he pulls over Bradley Cooper and he's just staring at him in the car. Dude, it I says, love... chills up my spine. I love that shot. Yes. It's so amazing because it's just like you barely see him. Mm -hmm. Like you see... I don't know how they set that up, yeah. but like the fact that you can just like you bear, you see just one tiny bit of his face, just his eye, yeah, looking in through the window. Oh my god, that was so cool. I'm I'm really curious now to know exactly what Derek told uh, Ray Liotta, like yeah. his like motivation, like so for this scene you got to do this and you need to come off this way. I wonder, I want to know what he told him now because it's I don't know. I just felt he, like he his whole entire eye would like just come and just like kill like Bradley right there in the oh, car. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels that way. I mean, I guess that's why when when he took him out in the forest, he Bradley Cooper just just ducked. He just he just got out of He's there. He's like, I'm out of here. Yeah, see ya, suckers. But um, yeah, yeah. Like I said, going back to that Tom Pass is like, yeah, happens happens when Ryan Gosling dies, mm -hmm. and so then the character then the story is about Bradley Cooper. Happens when Bradley Cooper turns to the police force. Then it's the story about their sons. Yep. And yeah, it's it's such an interesting movie about kind of like you're talking about. Uh, you know, fathers and their sons, and you know, kind of passing the sins, mm -hmm. you know, down the line. It it definitely feels like you know this this was one that I think wasn't this the one that he was like writing at the time he was kind of like finishing up Blue Valentine because his script writing yeah. process is kind of a lengthy one. And oh yeah, because I mean he took 
12 years to make to like make blue valentine from like the kind of the original concept mm-hmm. um and then six years for uh place beyond the pines yeah so yeah he yeah he was working on place beyond the pines before i think he'd even begun shooting and i think a big factor of that is i think especially with place beyond the pines or even just like with uh, blue valentine is when he finally uses actors, he will kind of intentionally go back and rewrite the dialogue or rewrite scenes oh, just yeah. from like the input. Yeah. Uh, funny thing is originally he did not want Bradley Cooper to be in this movie. He didn't really think of him. Oh. And then once he mm-hmm. had like seen Bradley Cooper, met with him and sent him the script. And even when Bradley Cooper was denying saying like, dude, this is too close to home. I don't want to touch this. <laughs> he intentionally drove up all the way to set five hour drive just to meet with him and convince him like, do this movie. I will write this character just for you. Wow. And he kind of like went back and just remeshed a lot of the scenes. And I guess that's like part of his script writing process is like why it takes so long is when he gets yeah. an actor on board, he brings a lot of their feedback, a lot of their input, a lot of like what they want to do with this character to the you know page. Yeah. He was talking about how Michelle Williams should almost be credited on you know, for screenwriting for, for Blue Valentine, just because he worked with her on the character so much. I mean, th- I think he was working with her on the for the movie for like, I think it was 11 years or so. Yeah. He brought Ryan Gosling on five years into working on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he worked with them so much and and developing their characters before they before they even have before they even have the money to shoot the film. Yeah. Well, he's like still trying to get finance from yeah. like investors. Yeah. All right, should we move on to his last one? Yeah, Uh, so Light Between Oceans. Can't just be a coincidence that she showed up. She's a lovely baby, but you can't keep her. She needs us. We're not doing anything wrong. I know that you're going to be a wonderful father. For my dad, with love forever (laughs) and ever. And ever, and ever. What's your name? Lucy. Lucy. It was lovely to meet you. Hi. Hi. My sister had a terrible tragedy. Her husband and their baby daughter were lost at sea. You would have been your girl's age by now. Um, I did not know pretty much anything about this mm-hmm. when I started watch before I started watching it. I knew it had Michael Fassbender, so that piqued my interest, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as story wise, I I just didn't really know. I think I think I like this maybe almost I was on par with Blue Valentine. It's it's a I think it's pretty different. It's a different film for him. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think in this in this one, he he wanted structure. Mm-hmm. He he was talking about um, how he got after shooting Place Beyond the Pines, he just got way too into his own head. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to do something that was not his. Mm-hmm. So he was shopping around looking, for, talking to agents and studios, looking for different projects to work on and and finally settled on um, Light Between Oceans. But yeah, he he wanted to do it because he wanted to do an adaptation. He wanted to do something, just get out of his own head, I guess. Oh, I was going to say that, that that's, that's that's actually really interesting to me because this is the movie. I, I hadn't seen this movie until uh, this watch either. Uh, but this is the one that feels, even though it's thematically in the same wheelhouse as far as relationships and children and uh you know, you uh, tension in in relationships. It feels like the sort of thing that he would make, but you know, stylistically, it's a lot 
more locked down and theatrical looking. The story doesn't feel as personal. So it's like, it feels like the sort of thing that he would make, but just not something from him. And I noted that while watching the movie. So it's interesting to hear that, he, you know, you know, he was looking to do something that was more of an adaptation as opposed to a personal story. Yeah. yeah. And what's really nice is, um, I guess when he had like was adapting this, he wanted to be as truthful and as honest to the original source material. Yeah. I think like the uh, author of the book, when she saw the movie, she just called him up and said, you know, she, I cried for a day after I saw it because no one, I was not yeah. expecting a, someone to actually be so faithful to it. And I mean, you look at it, it's, it feels like it has all the stuff that a Derek Garcia France movie would have. Exactly. It deals yeah. with family, deals with husband and wives and children and like the this really tough choice that yeah. both uh, all three characters are trying to make in this. I mean, he was saying it's it's essentially a companion piece to Blue Valentine. The quote is it, the quote from him is like this movie to me is about love, surviving children, it's about the power of love, and when kids go off to school and when they're eighteen, that the love is still there. Um, so it's definitely the companion kind of another extension of sort of themes that were captured in um, in Blue Valentine. You know, one thing I actually want to comment about this, and this is something that Derek C. France has like admitted to all of his works, is he doesn't want to write villains. He, in all of his works, yes. you look at it, no one is a, yes. really a villain. They're all characters. They all have good intent. Mm -hmm. They're just they make choices that obviously go down a different way or paint them in a different color. Yeah. You look at all of his work, Blue Valentine, um, even A Place Beyond the Pines, no one's actually doing stuff just because they're malicious or they want to, you know, be a backstabber and hurt somebody. Yeah. It's all of them are doing this because of their own experiences and just what they feel is right, not only for them, but for the ones that they care about. You look at the two characters in this and both of them have made choices, which, you know, are very questionable. Yeah. But especially with uh, Alicia, you kind of understand from her perspective, and especially in the first 30 minutes, oh, yeah. why she just is pulling his arm to make this decision and say, like, don't tell anyone about this. Because it's like, yeah, and that's actually was something that was really hard for me to watch is um, just as getting to spoiler territory, the two miscarriage scenes. Those are really yeah. tough to watch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, that's, that's something I love about his movies mm -hmm. in that. No one's the just like I said. No one's the outright villain. No, I guess maybe. Well, maybe Ray Liotta. Well, Ray but. Liotta's just you know he's a gangster at heart. He's always <laughs> wanted to be a gangster, yeah. right? But out of the main characters of each film, there's never there was never a a villain. There's never one. There, everyone has their own reasons behind doing these mm -hmm. things and um, their own you know wants and desires and. It's so much. That's what I love about it. Just mm -hmm. because it's so realistic, like. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, I lost track of where I was going with. No, with and that, I, th but I think that's yeah. just what makes I think just like that whole movie. Like the whole movie is really just these three characters making a decision, trying to own up to it, trying to avoid it, and then coming to a conclusion of like, well, we need to decide this. Yeah. And it's you know you kind of think to yourself like, oh well, if I was in that situation, I'd never do that. Well, you can't say that because it's like when you've been through these kinds of elements. Yeah. And obviously, it's a different time period as well in a different setting. I mean, yeah. I actually forgot this was in Australia. So New Zealand. New Zealand. My bad. New Zealand. But it's like on that part of the world where also, it's like, um, does no one have accents? I I, I don't. That's I true. No one really I didn't did notice any a, any like New Zealand accents. Well, I think uh, there's still a lot of people from like the British colonies. I mean, it was still inhabited. I guess. British colonies. So but it like, didn't. Wasn't that? It wasn't. Anyway, anyway yeah, we're off yeah, track I totally here. Get what you're <laughs> you know, Janus is where the word January comes from. Named after the same god as this island. 
He's got two faces back to back. Always looking both ways. Torn between two ways of seeing things. January looks forward to the new year. And back to the old. And this island looks in the direction of two different oceans. So this movie honestly hit kind of close to home for me. I I, I cried during this movie, I'm not going to lie. Oh, I was yeah. watching this like in the middle of the day. Like I didn't watch it in segments, but I kind of watched it like like here and there where I could uh, just based on my, my, my time schedule. You know, I watched some of it on the TV. I watched, I watched some of it on my phone. But still, this this movie really hit close to home for me for a couple of reasons. One is that the uh, the little girl in this movie is four years old for a good chunk of this movie. And my daughter is four years old right now. And I'm finding that movies that deal with fatherhood with little girls yeah. really kind of hit me closer to home than usual right well, now. I mean, honestly, there's also like there's those scenes where... Uh... Okay, when the little girl's torn apart from like these two parents that were raising her, just to go back to Rachel Weiss, there's this scene where it's all done in the backyard, and it's really just hard to sit through because you see Rachel Weiss is just trying to convince her this is your no home, and the daughter just won't. Your, na- your name is yeah. Grace. I'm not Grace. Oh, I know so that is hard. Mm-hmm. And kind of growing up now to accept that, like when you're a five year old girl, you can't handle that. And I just like how that was shot. That was shot. Ima- well. Imagine being ripped from your parents, and yeah. all of a sudden being told, "No, this is who you are." I know. Forget yeah. what you've known your your entire life. This is who you are now, mm-hmm. and I'm your mother. And it's just it, it's it's such a heart wrenching moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like it's, some of the some of the stuff, some of the questions raised in this movie about you know parenthood and all that is I, I've seen. Uh, versions of in real life and so so it's like watching this it's it's really easy to see all right the thing that shouldn't have happened was that fateful decision that michael fassbender and alicia vikander made when she's pleading with him you know let's let's bury the guy let's bury the husband let's keep the baby for our own you know nothing will come of it and i think the movie does a good job of putting you in the headspace of what would drive them to make this decision because of the two uh, yeah. miscarriages they've had and how much they want a child. And this opportunity has come up, which may not ever come up again. Right. And um, the movie does a good job of putting you in the headspace of what would drive them to do that, even though you know it's the wrong decision. Yeah. Then think- after that, it's a lot more murky about what is the right thing to do yeah. after this. So once they yeah. found out you know, about, about the actual mom, to expose themselves now would be a fatal to them and their relationship and just their, 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 their lives. Mm-hmm. And then four years later, it's just impossible. It's like, it's like, what do you do about the little girl who's been raised to have one set of parents when the right thing to do is to put her in the care of her original mom, but that isn't necessarily the right thing to do in that situation because she doesn't know that woman. That woman is not her mom. As tragic as it may be, that woman yeah. has been robbed of a child. Yep. But to give her over over in that situation would be to rob the child of her parents. And it's just like it's a heart-wrenching situation because they're – I mean, I mean, watching it at that point when the girl would be four years old, I realized no matter where the movie was going to go, there was going to be no true happy ending because there is no happy ending for this kind of situation yeah. because mm-hmm. – just just where you are in that headspace of this little girl you know and and the and the the grieving mom i i almost think it's you know when uh michael fassbender sent her the letter saying oh don't worry your daughter is okay i was thinking like 
in her space, that's probably worse than just thinking that her daughter had died. Yeah. Is all of a sudden yeah. knowing that she's still out there and somebody else has her. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, and I want to dabble into a little bit about this, but it almost seems like in all of his films, like uh, Derek Garcia Francis, really tackling the subject or this theme of guilt. And just like the fears that can spur from that or just the consequences from that. Like in Michael Fensbender's case, he is like really just weighed down with his guilt of what he's done, what he is keeping a secret. Uh And even like after he comes in forward and he's admitted to it, he's the one who's actually willing to go all the way to the, the, you know, the clinker and even to the block. If it means like his wife or, you know, Rachel Weisz can be spared from just whatever this is. And I don't know. I think you look in all of his films, he's dealing with that. He's dealing with these themes of guilt or just shame or this fear of like, if I stepped into the roles of fatherhood, what are some of the things that I, the mistakes I might make that just will pass on to that? Mm-hmm. You know, look at all of that. And it's like, that's a constant theme in all of his movies. He's wrestling with these complexities of that. Yeah. And I don't know. I think that's what makes his work just so uh, complex conflicting but at the same time really just good to watch like it's the reason why i think like with a place beyond the pines it's almost like a a prism or a puzzle that's just unfolding into something else yeah and Mm -hmm. i think that's just what makes it entertaining could i ask you something mr sherborne yes do ships ever rescue people far out at sea have you ever heard of little boats being picked up and survivors taken to the other side of the world, perhaps? When it comes to the ocean, anything's possible. Yeah, I will say, I, I, um, I, know, I know I mentioned a little bit ago how, you know, partway through the movie, I kind of realized there was going to be no true happy ending for everyone. Uh, I think I think this movie got I think this movie got got kind of as close as you could to in that sort of <laughs> it did, uh, actually. plot though. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Well, and that's probably just the reason, like the way like he was just he's portraying the book as as accurate as possible, and that's definitely how it ends. I did l- read the book, and it's like, yeah, that's pretty much how it ended, and it's as probably as as close to a happy ending as it can get. When I when I first wa- when I was first watching it, um, I was I I was actually re- like pissed off at um. Alicia Vikander's yeah. character. Mm-hmm. I was like, "What the? What are you doing? Yeah, you're screwing over. You're screwing over my boy Fastbender here. What's going on?" <laughs> I, it, but it didn't like. I thought I thought that pretty much through almost the entire movie, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really until like later on that I was that I that it kind of finally connected with me, and I could see more of her. Like I could understand more of her, you know, her motives. Mm-hmm. Like it just like throughout the entire like throughout the majority like pretty much all the movie I was I was I was kind of pissed off at her character. Uh, but are you talking about the the decision she made to screw him over later or or earlier oh, or just all throughout? All throughout. Okay. I was wanting Michael Fassbender to kind of do the quote, not really you know again it's a very complicated movie so not really necessarily the quote unquote right thing in sending out the message that the boat had been washed ashore there was the child still alive and yeah. kind of letting them take letting you know proper authorities take it from there yeah but i was kind of rooting him for him to do to do that just because it's technically the right thing to do well that was that that was absolutely the right the right thing to, for them to do was would, would, would be to report it yeah. um i do I, I mean i mean for me at least though i think it did a good job of putting you putting you in their headspace of seeing why they would do it despite it being the wrong 
decision, the obviously wrong decision. I think everything leading up to that point did a good job of showing you, you know, you know what kind of desperation she was led to, and what kind of things she she had got. I mean, I mean, she had gone through even more than Michael Fassbender with, you know, it, knocking at the door of a lighthouse when he oh, couldn't yeah. hear her and she was out there all night and everything. Yeah, that, that, like, so that was a tough through, scene you know? to watch in general. Honestly, this is going to be something that kind of occurred to me, and I was watching this movie and just kind of seeing. Uh, Michael Fassbender and another character who could have been like him if he it kept up to like fall by the rules and stick to you know protocol, and that was like the um, inspector character, the mm-hmm. one who's kind of like I go by the book, I go by the rules, and we have to follow this way out. And mm-hmm. you look at the very beginning, Michael Fassbender is pretty much that character. He's like you know I yeah. have to be you know punctual, I have to be logging everything. It's part of the rules, and really, if you live your life by that, I'm not saying like. There is no room for compassion, but you find it harder, especially in the inspector's case, where it, it just doesn't face him like, well, why would you do that? That's not how the law works. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's a decision that Rachel Weiss wants to do at the very end, and he just is like, I'm dumbfounded. I don't understand why you would do that. And it's yeah. because he's just followed, you know, regiment and rules all his life. And you kind of almost think of Michael Fassbender could have been like that guy if he didn't allow, like, a little bit of just to break. I wouldn't say break away from the rules is a good thing, but a lot of that kind of compassion shine through. Cause mm-hmm. I think in some way he turned out a little bit better as a result of it. You know, you know, I, I actually wouldn't mind seeing an extended version of this movie that gives a little bit more time to the inspector just on his own before he comes into the story uh, to get a greater understanding because, because I mean, I mean, when he comes in, he really wants to nail Fassbender's ass. Well, yeah, oh, because yeah. he has this impression of him. of like, you buried a guy, you took someone's child. What kind of a monster are you? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, 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 uh, um, I don't know if, if any other scenes of him were around, uh, are on the cutting room floor and the movie is, is already, I mean, it's what over two hours as it is. It, it yeah, doesn't feel long, feeling to me though. And anyway, but, but I wouldn't have minded seeing a version of this movie where, you know, in the early section, first half of the movie, putting in more scenes, showing him and his convictions and why he's an inspector and what his headspace is and all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, that was just kind of like a thought that occurred to me. It's like, you know, if Michael Fassbender had kept to the rules all the time, would he have turned out like that guy and not the person? Who well, was I, in the I, movie? I, I got the impression that Fassbender was worried to lose Alicia Vikander. And that's one of the reasons that he agreed to keep the baby. True. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I agree with that. But yeah, very complex. Mm-hmm. Beautiful movie too. Oh yeah, that's what I was going to talk about like too. Some of just like the landscape shots and oh. just the ocean shots. I'm like, okay, gorgeous. So, so this is what uh, Sea of France is like when you give him a budget. Like this is a studio <laughs> budget, Sea of France. Yeah, kind of also talking about how it was the uh, the look of the film. This one had a different kind of cinematography style than mm-hmm. his two previous ones. His mm-hmm. two Blue Valentine, Place Beyond the Pines, were both kind of almost documentary style very just yeah. like handheld kind of close up mm-hmm. um whereas this one featured uh, i think a lot more kind of establishing shots mm-hmm. i guess mostly due to kind of the mm-hmm. um you know showing the huge shots of the uh the island that they're on and whatnot i think i liked the kind of little bit of a little bit of a change with this mm-hmm. one i don't think the very like kind of same sort of style would, would have worked really well on Light Between Oceans, especially mm-hmm. kind of given the location of shooting on that island. Mm-hmm. So I was I'm I'm completely fine with the with a little bit of change there. Yeah, interesting enough too. When they shot the movie, they actually just like camped out out there. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he it took some it took some convincing to get Michael Fassbender to get out there. He, Michael Fassbender when proposed with the idea of camping out there, he's like, 
He's like, is it really necessary? Derek's and friends had had a really kind of rope him in and get him into it. And yeah, after a while, yeah, he just kind of going back to again with how Derek St. Friends really kind of like facilitates his, his, his actors to try and get into that space. Exactly. That, that, that so that they can feel. really just live the character and so that the acting kind of stops and they're, they're just, they're being the character. And I think this is just a good example of uh, Derek St. Francis, just one of those indie filmmakers who's kind of come from like those grassroots um, origins mm-hmm. and it's kind of still kept this just very organic film style. Even when he's given a studio picture, he still brings that. He still mm-hmm. carries that with him. And I think that's just one thing. Hopefully, as he goes on with his career, with he does more movies, he just retains that. Because I think yeah. it's just one of his just shining qualities. And it's just, I think, something, even actors, even though they might fight with him on it, I think it's something at the very end, they appreciate him for it because they're, mm-hmm. they're given something really, just some good performances, like some raw and organic things to just see on the screen. Yeah, and then, it'd be kind of interesting when he finally does a comedy. What that will look like? Oh, I. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. <laughs> Romantic comedy, you know, directed by Derek Sia France. <laughs> Have him do a slapstick. Go back to those old uh, Chaplin movies. Yeah, it'd be That'd kind of be cool weird. if he actually did like a. Oh, he should do a Buster Keaton biopic. Yeah, just do that. That'd be interesting to see how he it tackles that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think. That kind of wraps it up. Yeah. No, thanks for letting us do this. I mean, like this was a, like I said, we all like to place beyond the pines. I think Joe and I, we really bonded this movie and just this director when we first saw him. So Mm -hmm. yeah, this is kind of cool just to sit down and finally talk about that. Next time we have to pick a freaking comedian because geez, this is so, (laughs) yeah. Oh my God. Pretentious. No, excuse you. (laughs) Excuse you indeed. I was, I was going to say it's it's so heavy and hard to get through these movies. You got to pick something lighthearted. Well, you know, I was considering about doing a uh, a Kevin Smith director spotlight. Nice. I was was saying that or maybe Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow would be kind of a cool as well. I think either one of those would be uh, an interesting director's spotlight. Yeah. So, Joe, maybe you should take one. I'll take one. And then I'll do another pretentious one. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) Wes Anderson, because you need to do a Wes Anderson. No, we can do Nicholas Winding Refn next. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do a director's spotlight way bowl. <laughs> can we can we do a uh, Bronson, please? Oh yeah, absolutely. We have to do Bronson. Bronson's amazing. Yeah, I still haven't seen Bronson actually. Oh, wonderful naked bald Tom Hardy getting his ass slapped. He's great. Oh my gosh! So that'll do it for this episode of the Film Literates Podcast. Uh, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on filmliterates.com. We got a bunch of old episodes. Uh, film letters to check out as well as some some uh, podcasts as well from earlier on this year mm-hmm. um if you want to check out what i've been listening to i'm on rate your music under half scrim uh same thing for my anime list and then i'm on twitter at alex d Patton. nate uh you can find me here on the film illiterates um i'm also on instagram i go for uh nathan underscore stoner underscore films but i also cosplay star lord so you can actually find me as Starlord underscore rules and I do some you know events with uh, some adventure cosplayers but I'm hoping to do more podcasts in the future I'm going to venture off into do a couple more of that stuff so keep your ears open and you can find me on uh, Twitter at film illiterates and on letterboxd.com slash film uh, dash underscore film underscore illiterate Be, search film illiterates in the users and uh, letterbox just, just type film illiterates will pop up yeah in the in the user section 
And of course, you can find all of our videos and other podcast episodes on youtube.com slash filmliterates and on filmliterates.com. That'll be all. And keep watching movies and keep it easy.